19, or Hebrews 10, I'm sorry, verses 19 through 25. Hebrews 10, 19 through 25. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Heavenly Father, please focus our hearts, our attention on your word. We know that your word is powerful. We sang a little while ago about the presence of the Holy Spirit. We know the Holy Spirit applies your word to our hearts and convicts us of sin, transforms us into the likeness of Jesus, and we ask, God, that you would do that during this time together. Humble us under your mighty hand. And we pray, God, that as you humble us, you will exalt Jesus, and that he will be made much of in this place. And we ask it in his name. Amen. Truth leads living. The things that we believe lead us to live in a particular way. At least that's what should happen with any sane-minded individual. Whatever you hold to be true is going to lead the way that you then apply that truth to your life and live accordingly. There's an example that I think that we can all relate to that I, that I hope will at least make this somewhat clear, and that was life in the pandemic. Think about all the things that you were told over those couple of years what were supposed to be truths about masks, about six feet, then it was about three feet, about washing your groceries, about vaccines, there's more. And so just about everything that you were told during that time turned out to be false in one way or another. But along the way, you probably believed something you were told by supposed experts. That's what we do. And life was lived out accordingly. And as the truths kind of gradually changed over time, the application gradually changed over time. And I get it, people were just trying to do the best they could based on what they were told was truth. And that really is, that's just the way that we live. Whatever we believe guides the way that we are going to do things. Belief guides practice. And it's no different in matters of faith. What we believe to be true is going to guide what we say yes and no to. It's going to guide what we love. It's going to guide what we trust in. It's going to guide what we find comfort in. A couple of examples biblically speaking do you believe that Jesus Christ died an excruciating death to take your judgment for sin 
you believe that? Brother Angel says yes. And if you do believe that, what effect should that have on the way that you live? Shouldn't it have an effect on the way that you live? It's not just something that you hold in your heart, you place in the compartment of your heart, and it just stays there. If you believe that is true, it should have a tremendous effect on the way that you live your life. It should certainly affect the way that you have a relationship with sin, does it not? Does it lead you to believe that God loves you? Does it impact your heart in that way? Because if we read the scriptures and we see the heart of God in that he was coming to save a people for himself so that he could delight in these people forever and they could delight in him, we should know based on that truth that we are loved and our lives should reflect that love, should it not? When a person is told that they have cancer, they take it pretty seriously, do they not? Some of you all have been told that before. And I have to imagine that when you received that news, immediately it impacted the way that you lived. I'm going to start living different. I've got to start eating different. My routine is going to change. I've got treatment that's going to come up. Everything about your life begins to change based on the fact that you now have cancer. You hold that to be true. Life changes. And you're going to be willing to do all sorts of things in order to get rid of that cancer. Jump through all sorts of hoops, go through all sorts of suffering so that your body can be rid of that disease. And so I ask you, is sin more, is sin more serious than cancer? The effects of sin are far worse than cancer, and they're eternal. And Jesus has shown you the weightiness of sin, and he was willing to give his life for it. And if you believe that he did that, should you and I not be willing to jump through all sorts of hoops in order to kill off sin that is still left inside of us? Life should change based on that truth, should it not? That would be consistent with what we say we believe. And do you believe right now that Jesus Christ is king over all the earth? Is he king? Does he rule? Revelation chapter 1 says that he is the king over all the kings of the earth. Do you believe it? Well, if we do believe that, that, sh that truth should lead us to live without fear. We shouldn't be a frightened people. And we are not thankful necessarily for the direction of our society, the way that it's going right now. It's a sad state of affairs on multiple fronts, but we are not a panicking people, are we? At least we better not be. If we say believe, we believe that Jesus is king, that he rules, that he is sovereign, that nothing is going to stay his hand, nothing is going to thwart him, he cannot say to anything thus far and no more and it proceed, if we believe that, we will not be afraid. All things are in his hands. Truth leads living. What we believe to be true is fleshed out in the way that we carry on with our lives. And I do admit and understand that people are often inconsistent. Are we not? I, mean, I think you've probably had conversations with somebody before and pointed out 
their inconsistencies. Well, you say you believe this, but what about this? And somehow or another, sinful people are able to be living inconsistent lives. This is true. But God's people, once we see truth, we should make corrections and start to live consistently with what we believe. We're going to see something of that in this passage that's here in front of us. If we believe some of these truths that we've been taught over the last several chapters of this book, there should be some clear, very clear applications for the way that we're going to live. There are truths given to us in verses 19 through 21, and then there are applications based on those truths given to us in verses 22 through 25. And so we are going to start with the truths, and hopefully those applications become crystal clear for you afterwards. Here is the truth that is summarized in just these few verses about what Jesus has done for his people. Because of the sacrifice and priesthood of Jesus Christ, we can confidently enter the holy places of heaven. Based on what Jesus has done for us, we were sinful people. We were, we were rejected from the presence of God, not able to enter into his presence. But based on what he has done, God welcomes us into the holy places of heaven. Jesus has given us access where we could not enter before. I want you to think with me just for a moment about the temple in Jerusalem about the structure of it, the way that it was set up, what was portrayed by that, with all the walls, all the curtains, all the barriers that kept people out of various places. There was the court of the Gentiles on the outside. This was the place where Jesus came along and turned over the tables of the money changers. He came into this place. This was supposed to be a place where the Gentiles were welcomed in, to worship God, but they turned it into a marketplace, and Jesus came in to correct that. This is supposed to be a house of prayer for all the nations, the court of the Gentiles, but there was a wall where the Gentiles could not proceed any further. This far, no more. As a matter of fact, there was a sign erected there that said, if you proceed any further from here, you will die. That's how serious it was. Then there was the court of the women. There was a place where the women could go and go no further. There was a wall that limited their access to the central part of the temple complex. Beyond that wall, now you enter into the area where sacrifices were made, priests offering up or sacrificing animals, offering up blood. And beyond that was the external part of the temple, only the priests could enter into this place, nobody else. Everyone else, access denied. And they went in here often to change out the showbread, trim the wicks, do the regular duties of a priest. This was a daily thing, but only the priests could do that. All the people from the other 11 tribes, no entrance. And then on the inside of the temple, there was another curtain, and this place could only be entered one time of the year by one man, the high priest. On the Day of Atonement, 
As he offered up blood for both his sins and for the sins of the people, he was able to gain access into this place, but only for a few minutes. So can you see there was, there was structure of barriers throughout the temple complex that are supposed to communicate something to us? What do those barriers tell us? They should tell us that God is holy. He's holy. And that sin keeps us from him. But still he wants to provide a way for sinners to come near. I think it also should tell us that God loves people. He very well could have just wiped the earth clean with every sinner out there, but his desire was to have a people for himself. So he says, come, but restrict access was restricted. Therefore, Jesus. As the great high priest, he has gone inside, not in the earthly temple. That earthly temple was just a model of the real thing. He's gone into the heavenly temple. The first man, a holy man who makes it possible for other holy men to follow behind him. He has made that way open for us through his blood. He has cleansed us with it and made us holy. We are pure. We are washed. And now we have access where we were once denied. Where God used to say, this far, no further. He now says, come. Come in. Come and be with me. There's a great picture of John F. Kennedy Jr. underneath his dad's desk in the White House. Have you ever seen that picture before? JFK Jr. was a little boy crawled up underneath his dad's desk. What do you think would happen if the Secret Service found somebody else underneath that desk? Kind of a funny thought, isn't it? But here this little boy is. He's sitting underneath the desk. He has perfect access under there. Nobody's afraid of him being there. He's supposed to be there. He had access to the president that nobody else had. It was his dad's desk. What if there were other people who were children of the president at that time? Would they have had that access as well? Absolutely. Under that desk, they could have gone and played if they'd wanted to. Jesus, the special son of the Father, he has access to the throne room of God. And by faith in him, we are called children and told to come in with him. He looks at us and he says, don't be afraid. You're with me. You can come where I go. Come in. The Father wants you there. And we can enjoy the love of God as Christ now enjoys the love of God. His blood has opened up a new and living way for us behind the curtain Access was denied, now access is granted. Come in. And a key word in this passage that leads to a change in our behavior is confidence. We're told that there in verse 19. Have confidence to enter the holy places. 
And so believing these truths about Jesus, it should cause us to know that we are loved. We're cleansed. We're welcomed now into the holy places, into the presence of God. Have you ever felt merely tolerated by somebody when you were around them? Every time you were in the room, it's just like you know that they really didn't want you there. Probably had to walk on eggshells around that person. You were just tolerated in their presence. The death of Jesus is God telling you in very plain terms that you are loved, not tolerated. I think so many people probably feel that way about their relationship with God, that they are, God's merely like holding his nose with you around. Ugh, it's him again. He sent his son to prove that that is not the case. That he delights to welcome you in. You're not being called into the angry boss's office for your annual review. Many of you all know what that feels like. Don't know how that one's going to go. We do not have to be timid. We do not have to be fearful. We do not have to be a doubting people anymore. He has nothing but love for those who love his son. And if that describes you, you do not have to be afraid. You can have confidence. And so I ask you this morning, do you believe that? Do you believe that he gave his life for you? Do you believe that your sin has been cleansed? Do you believe that you have access into the holy places? Do you believe that you are tremendously loved by God? And when he says, come, he really means it. He's not just saying it. Come. Be with him. Enter into his presence. Jesus has won that right of confidence for you. It is an incredible truth, and it should be life-changing. It should. To think that there was a time when you did not have access to God, you were not his people, you could not think that he delighted in you and loved you, but through faith in Jesus Christ, he has come into your heart through his spirit and tells you that you are a child, and you can crawl up underneath that desk. You can come... That should change the way that you function. It should change your level of joy on a day-in and day-out basis to know that there is a God in heaven who smiles upon you. He rules and reigns over everything, and you are known personally by him, cared for by him, provided for by him. He just says, come and ask of me. I delight to give to you, my children. And yet, what do we do? We're fearful. We're timid, we're doubting, and we don't come. We don't draw near. We think that it must not be true, and yet we are told it is. Someone's calling somebody. This is an incredible truth, and it should change the way that we live. So again, truth, if we believe certain things, it's going to lead us to live in a certain way. Those are the truths. 
God has opened up the way for you. Come near to him. And now we get the application in verses 22 to 25. And the Hebrews here makes the application pretty easy for us to spot. Each point of application begins the next three verses with the words, let us, let us. So because these things are true about Jesus and us, let us start to live in a particular way. So three things here, three applications that we should draw from these truths. Number one, let us draw near to God with hearts filled with faith. You can draw near. Again, that temple said you can't draw near. God said this far, no further. Walls, curtains, all told us can't approach God beyond here for you. But because Jesus has, we are told to draw near to God with hearts filled with faith. His sacrifice accomplished your cleansing. And if that is true, if that's really true, your guilt is gone. Your guilt has been wiped clean. Punishment, shame, a guilty conscience are removed by the blood of Jesus Christ when you turn those over to him. Do you believe that? And yet so many people, I think, probably continue to carry their guilt with them as if Jesus has not died for them. That burden remains on their back. They say they believe. They say they trust in the cross that it's all been accomplished, it's all been taken care of, and yet they still carry their guilt. They cannot believe that they have been washed clean. It's as if they have to continue to do penance over and over and over again in order to somehow merit the favor of God. But he says you don't have to do that. The death of Jesus Christ has washed you pure as the buffalo snow until it sits there for a long time and turns black. I want to read you a section from the book Pilgrim's Progress that describes the removing of guilt when we believe the cross is for us. And if you know anything about that story, the man named Christian, the man named Christian continued to carry a burden on his back for a period of time. He carried a burden on himself until he saw the cross. Listen to what it says. Now, I saw in my dream Christian was walking on a highway that was fenced on both sides by a wall called Salvation. He ran up this way with great difficulty because of the load on his back. He ran like this until he came to the top of a hill. And upon that place stood a cross. And a little below in the bottom was a tomb. So I saw in my dream that just as Christian approached the cross, his burden came loose from his shoulders. It fell off his back and began to tumble all the way down the hill to the tomb where it fell in and I saw it no more. Christian became so excited that he said with a merry heart, Jesus has given me rest by his sorrow and life by his death. Then he stood still a while to look and wonder. For it was very surprising to him that just the sight of the cross would remove his burden and give him peace. 
He looked and kept on looking until tears poured down his cheeks. Now as he stood looking and weeping, behold, three shining angels came to him and said to him, Peace be with you, your sins are forgiven. They stripped him of the rags he was wearing and dressed him in new clean clothes. They also put a mark on his forehead and gave him a scroll with a seal upon it, telling Christian to look at it for comfort on his journey and deliver it when he arrived at the celestial gate. After this, the angels left him. Then Christian gave three leaps for joy and went on singing, Thus far did I come, burdened with sin. Nothing could ease the grief I was in. Till I came here, what a place this is, where I have found the beginning of bliss. Blessed cross, blessed tomb, blessed rather be. The man there who was put to shame for me. So Christian continued to carry this burden. I imagine it being like a giant backpack on his back until he came to the place where he saw the cross And that pack was removed from his back. It tumbled all the way down the hill and fell into the tomb, never to be seen again. His guilt was gone. Gone. He didn't have to carry it anymore. And when you believe that in your heart, brothers and sisters, that burden is loosed from you. It tumbles down that hill into the tomb, never to be seen again. So I ask, are you living consistently with what you say you believe? And are you continuing to carry guilt, guilt, a fear of punishment, shame in your heart? It does not mean that you should not feel some sort of shame for sin. That's not what I'm saying. But it's as if you're trying to carry it yourself, believing that God cannot forgive you for such a thing that you have done. Because when you believe the cross, he takes it from you. It has been paid for. You no longer owe God for it. Your debt has been wiped clean. That's what a true heart and full assurance of faith sees. It sees what Jesus has done and accepts it completely, as marvelous as that is, and and now knows that God delights when I come near. He is not repelled from me. He's the father in the parable of the prodigal son. Do you remember that? That son came to his senses there in the pig pen. He walks back toward the father thinking all the way that he's just going to be a servant. I just want to eat. I know that he's going to reject me. He's carrying that guilt with him. And what does the father do? He sees him far off. He's looking for him. sees him far off and runs to him. And when he gets there, the son's trying to explain himself and says, oh, you know, I've been so bad, and, uh, and the father won't hear any of it. He just wants to throw a party. He's back. That's the heart of the father towards sinners who repent and come to him. He delights when we draw near. And so let us, brothers and sisters, draw near, as it says here, with full confidence that we are sons and daughters. We are not enemies anymore. Sons and daughters of the Most High. That's number one. Number two, application. Let us hold tightly to our hope without wavering. Hold tightly to our hope without wavering. And when we get to chapter 11, what we're going to see here is that there is a close connection between faith and hope. Hope in the book of Hebrews is our assurance of a heavenly promise. 
There is a place for you. That's where Jesus is. And one day you will be with him. Keep going. That's what hope is. It is the assurance that God's promise out there is true for me and I can continue to walk faithfully knowing he will keep his word. A lot of people will not keep their word for you and you doubt what they say, but God has never lied and he never will. And he says there is a heavenly city for his people. Keep going. That's what hope is in the book of Hebrews. And so the basis of our hope is the promises of God, that you have an inheritance. You did not earn this inheritance. It was not born to you by blood, not physical blood. It was given to you by the blood of Jesus Christ. That you now are a son of the king, a daughter of the king. And what Jesus has earned now belongs to you as well. He will gladly give this inheritance to you. He loves the thought of giving the kingdom to his people. But you have to pass through the wilderness before you get there. And what is the wilderness? And what was the wilderness for the children of God? It was the place where they learned to trust in his word. The place where they learned to trust in his word. More than shaky feelings, more than circumstances. Do any of you right now have circumstances that you would rather be rid of? Any of you? I'd say a few. So you can see those circumstances, can't you? And you can feel the pain that they cause. But we're being taught to trust in what God has said to us through our circumstances and through our feelings. The Israelites, they failed in the wilderness. That generation, it died out there in the desert because they did not believe in God's promise. They got to the threshold. They got to the threshold of the promised land. And God was ready to give it to them. And they rejected his word. So we don't believe he's a good God. He brought us out here to kill us didn't believe and are we a people who believe in the promises of God because if we do and know the firmness of his word that it is as Hebrews 6 says an anchor for our souls it plants us firmly in the promises of God if we believe that we will not give up at the edge of the promised land and you need to understand that's actually where you are right now you're at the threshold. Jesus has won it all. It's all been conquered for you. All we're waiting on is for him to return and pick us up. Do you believe? I think just the giving of this command right here, it tells us that there will be moments when we will be challenged. That there will be circumstances in our lives when you're going to be tempted to throw away your future inheritance for that bowl of soup like Esau did. It was in his face. He could see it with his eyes. He was hungry. And right there in that moment, it mattered more than his inheritance did, so he swallowed up that soup. There's going to be moments like that for you and me as well. Something is going to be right there in front of your face, that you can see. And you'll be tempted from the inside to take it 
for yourself. Or you're going to be tempted to believe falsehoods. Something's going to be happening in your life that's going to lead you to doubt. You might say to yourself in that moment, if God loved me, fill in the blank. You know, this wouldn't happen to me. If God really loved me, he wouldn't have let this come into my life. You ever been tempted to think anything like that before? Because what you're seeing there in your life does not match in some ways what you know about the love of God. So we begin to doubt God's love. You're going to be tempted to be led by your feelings in a moment of fear rather than standing firm on what God says is true. Start to think to yourself, you know, God has left us. He's abandoned me. I'm all alone on this one. And so we're being told here that there's going to be dangers along the way, that there's going to be moments when hope is attacked and heaven will seem like a farce, like a pipe dream, fairy tale. Never had one of those moments? You need to expect that those things will come into your lives. Remind yourselves that they will. And when it comes, if you're holding firmly to that hope, you will not collapse like a house of cards. God has a purpose for those trials. We're being trained to follow the sound of his voice instead of our sinful desires, the voice of Satan and the pleasures of the world. This morning... Russ Peck was standing down here trying to make a phone call, and he was talk, trying to talk to somebody on the other end who couldn't hear him. It reminded me of those commercials, you know, can you hear me now commercials. So often the trials in our lives are like that where God is saying, can you hear me now? Are you going to listen to me now? Will you pay attention to my voice now? Now, now, this time, this time. He's training us to listen to him instead of all the noise that's out there and all the things that I can see right here in front of me that calls me to doubt him. I'm going to hold firm to his word. He has promised me he will not let me go. All the way to the end. That is a hope like is being described right here. That God's promise is enough for me. I believe what he has said. He has reserved a heavenly place that Jesus says he is preparing it for me. I believe him. He will not leave me as an orphan down here. And when the time comes, he will not leave me an orphan there. He's with me. Lastly, last application. Let us determine, make a decision, put our foot in the sand that we will be a people who gather with one another for expressions of love, good works, and encouragement. That's what we see there in verse 24. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. It's telling us that there is another temptation for God's people when we start to doubt his word. For various reasons, the people of God choose to isolate themselves. 
to cease gathering together, to stop practicing those one another's. More than likely, when this letter was written, the primary reason that these people stopped gathering together was fear. They were afraid. They were afraid of what was going to happen to them if they did come together with one another, and everybody knew that they were Christians. They might be hauled off to jail or worse. They're already told in the next passage that they've already suffered the plundering of their possessions. Their stuff's being taken from them by the authorities because they were Christians. Bad things are happening. So we need to stop gathering together with one another. In our day, I think it's a little bit more complicated. For a lot of people over these last few generations, church has been too many, not all, but too many, has been a kind of spectator sport, a concert, a rally, a performance by professionals, something more like an entertainment venue that makes me feel good rather than what the New Testament teaches us. And what does it tell us that church is supposed to be? It tells us that church is supposed to be a body. A body where every piece is necessary and has its role. And when, all, when one member hurts, what happens to the rest of the body? When you tear a fingernail off, what happens? The rest of the body just says, ah, didn't want that anyway. Like, no way. The whole body hurts. And when one rejoices... The whole body rejoices. There's a unity in the body of Jesus Christ where we don't just discard people. We should notice when part of our body is missing, correct? If you woke up tomorrow and from the knee down your leg was gone, I'd say you'd notice it as soon as you stood up, right? Well, the church is supposed to be the same way. So this was never meant to be just a spectator place. Our concert, no. It's not just a place to come and watch. It's a place to come and practice these things. Love, encouragement, good works. And that has to happen as we interact with one another. Time has to be spent with the people to know them to do these things. That's what is expected. So the temptation that we're seeing here is to start to believe that the gathering of God's people is a non-priority. I don't really need that. Nah, we can do without that for a while. If something else comes up, that can take a back seat. But God is telling us right here that that kind of thinking is broken that we must gather together. It should be a priority in every child of God's life. You need togetherness for encouragement. And we need to stir up one another in love and good works. That is a great word right here, to stir up. It means to agitate or aggravate. Think about that. We need to aggravate one another to love and good works. And of course, he's using this. He's using this in a good sense. And I think this might actually be the only place in the New Testament, maybe, that it is used in a positive sense. 
It's like scratching a wound, right? Stirring it up or beating some eggs in a bowl until they're properly mixed. The other night, Dale and I were cooking downstairs, and he was watching me beat the eggs. And I must have been doing it pretty poorly. And I noticed it wasn't going so well, you know? Like, but he came over, and he grabbed my, 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 my egg mixer, and he starts just... <laughs> and I said, man, those do look pretty good. <laughs> Dale came over and stirred up the eggs properly. And that's what we're being told here that needs to happen in the church. We come together to stir one another up. Life on life. That's the way it's supposed to be. If we're all just kind of passing ships, you know, there's no stirring up that's going to happen. Maybe it shows how lazy the church can become in doing these things, and I think that's true. That's why it's being said here. Otherwise, it wouldn't need to be said. I don't just need a nudge to encourage others. I don't just need a nudge to go and love my brothers and sisters in Christ. I don't need a nudge to bring about good works. I need to be agitated toward it. I need more than a nudge. I need to be pushed, shoved, again, that requires us coming together and knowing each other. You just walk in and start agitating somebody you don't know toward love. They're going to think, who is this guy? But when you know someone, you know how to do it rightly, truthfully, in love. I'm being told that I am prone, and you are prone to slink into the opposite of what this passage tells us to do. Our natural, comfortable habitat is laziness. I'm not prone toward love. I'm prone toward selfishness. I'm not prone toward good works. I'm prone, prone to sitting at my house and watching Netflix. I'm not prone toward encouragement. I'm prone toward discouragement. I have seen this, and so have you. You've seen this happen in people's lives who detach from the church. They do not grow by leaps and bounds. That does not happen. Unless they've been sent to the wilderness by God as a missionary somewhere, and he has promised to give them manna from heaven like the Israelites for a period of time to sustain them. It's not normal. That's not the normal way. The normal way is that God's people come together and stir one another up. And when you detach... And there are people who have detached. You can rest assured that they are not growing. They're not. They need the church. You and I need one another. I do believe that this is one of the main reasons here why Hebrews includes this as an application for the truth that we have a high priest in the holy places. This one might seem as though it's a bit detached from the others. Maybe it doesn't flow as naturally from what we've been told is the truth. Why does he include this? This coming together. Jesus is in the holy places already as a sacrifice for us, as a priest for us. How does this flow from that? I think like this. 
If Jesus is in heaven, promising a faithful people the hope of heaven, then for us to gather together is a preview of heaven. Does that make sense? Jesus is already there. He said he's going to collect us together with him, and what we do down here is a preview of what we will have someday. And so to fail to meet together to encourage one another on the road to heaven is a denial of the work of Jesus Christ. It means I'm not living consistently with what I believe. If I believe that I have heaven with other believers there in the presence of God there, I am going to do that while I am down here. And so what we do here on earth is intimately connected to what we will be someday. And so when we gather for love and good works and encouragement for building up, we are living out what we say we believe. Casanova Park Baptist Church is supposed to be a little picture painted here on earth of heavenly things. Heavenly things. The land of the love for Jesus Christ and love for one another right here in the middle of an unbelieving, unloving world. We're an outpost of the kingdom of heaven. That's what we are. What we should be. When we say that we believe the gospel, these things should happen. It will transform the way that we live. The gospel will cast its bright, warm rays into every crack and crevice where sin and darkness like to hide. Attitudes, feelings, broken thinking, hardness of heart, all of those inconsistencies are all going to be driven away like it's the first day of summer in Buffalo. Snow melt. Darkness gone. And as that happens... This is what will be growing in the garden of our hearts. Faith, hope, love. Did you notice that in these verses? Faith, verse 22. Hope, verse 23. Love, verse 24. Kind of cardinal virtues of the Christian life. That's what will be growing. A full assurance of faith and unwavering hope in what God has promised and a commitment to gather to agitate one another in a good way to love good works and encouragement let's pray together heavenly father we ask this morning that these truths that we say we believe about jesus christ would be so firmly planted in our hearts that all of these things you say you delight in will grow in us and so father where there is not faith drive it out where there is not hope cast it aside and where love is not with God's people, conquer it. Make us a Christ-centered, serving people. Not self-centered, self-serving. Lord, please have your way in our hearts to lead us to live consistently with what we say we believe. And we trust it all into your hands. And we ask it in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.